Thanks for listening to Sake on Air. This is Frank stepping in to tell you about a shochu cocktail event being held by JSS in Osaka on the 11th of November. Around 10 bartenders will come together at the Osaka Food Lab near Nakatsu Station to make a wide variety of cocktails using shochu and other Japanese spirits. Doors open at 12 and last order is at 5.30, and some of the Sake on Air members may also be there. More information can be found in the show notes. And with that, let's get to the show. The people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. Of- Welcome once again for tuning into a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. The show is made possible because of the support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and broadcast whenever possible from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. My name is Cindy Bissick, and let's say I am a more irregular host here on Sake on Air, and today I will be facilitating a very special interview with Christian Suzuki Oriana, GM, bartender and founder of Wild Hawk in the US, and semi-finalist of the immensely popular Netflix show Cocktail Masters. I had the pleasure of meeting him last week at the Shochu Cocktail event sponsored by JSS, As part of this, they have been visiting Chochu Distilleries, which is one of the reasons why we really want to chat to him today and learn more about what he does and what he is taking back from the trip when he returns to the US. Now, because we are planning to dig deep into all things shochu and cocktails, we have brought in a very special guest host. He has been on the hot seat with us before himself. It's no other than Joshin Atone. Many of you will be familiar with his name, but for those who aren't, Joshin grew up splitting his time between California and Fukuoka. He has been part of a number of well-regarded bar programs in the industry He has started with Angel Shares in New York City. He's been to Shanghai and Tokyo as part of the opening team for several bars, but most notably probably the SG Club in Tokyo, where he transitioned from bartending into brand management and operations design. Today, Joshin runs Flow, a brand and operations consultancy for bar projects and beyond. And if you want to find out a little bit more about him, then tune into our episode 47, where we interviewed him and learned a lot about what he does. And I tell you, it's very, very interesting. But now let's not wait any longer and welcome our two special guests. So hello, Joshin and hello, Suzu. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules today. Amazing. Thank you, Cindy, for the generous intro. And thank you for having me. <laughs> Good morning, Suzu. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, nice to see you. So actually, we actually saw each other very briefly um, a little bit over a year ago in San Francisco. Um, that was during the SG Shochu launch. And I remember, I think if I remember correctly, you had a very cute puppy on your lap. Oh, <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I yeah, did. that was a nice touch to the event. <laughs> I'm glad you remembered. <laughs> so where are you right now? 
I am currently in, um, I call this more of like my hometown more than anywhere else, but I am in Asakusa in Tokyo, um, just visiting family for, for a few days. Oh, nice. So your family is, where is your family in the world? Um, so um, at the moment, um, my my family's uh, been in Asakusa. Um, uh, my mom actually moved back here over a little over 15 years ago, and then my brother about 10 years ago. And I'm the only one that's kind of still in the U.S. at the moment. But um, uh, yeah, we're um, we're all in Asakusa now. <laughs> oh, nice. So yeah, we do have a few things in common. Um, I I was born in San Francisco, although oh. I didn't live there. Um, and my family, uh, half of my family is also in Japan. Um, it is in Kyushu. So um, I've split my time basically kind of going back and forth between the two. So uh, the, the West Coast to uh, Japan is uh, definitely a flight I can relate to. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a good uh, relationship to have between like California and Japan. It's, um, I'm very fortunate and privileged to have grown up with both places. So. <laughs> Nice. So can you tell me actually about this trip? So I think you're visiting family, but it sounds like you were involved with a lot of different uh, visits to different parts of Japan and events and the like. So if you could tell us a little bit about your trip this time. Yeah, definitely. So this this trip was actually mostly for, um, uh, it was through JSS and um, going to Kyushu and to check out a bunch of different distilleries in Kyushu, meet some master distillers and um, study and learn more about shochu, which um, for me, like this was, I think, a trip that I had imagined in my dreams for so long. Um, I've had so many friends from Kyushu. Actually, most of my friends in Tokyo are actually all from Kyushu, from Miyazaki and um, or Kumamoto. And um, I've uh, always wanted to go to their like, you know, their hometowns and see what it's like because they talk so much about it in, a, a, in the most beautiful ways. Um, and then I also love shochu as well, too. I um, kind of kind of grew up between here in Tokyo and especially during kind of like my more um, primary ages of like getting into the industry and really kind of, or I guess like the beginning parts of my, my um, industry days was mostly in Tokyo where, you know, I was drinking a lot of shochu with my friends. So, so for me, it almost became kind of like a full, a full circle um, trip. I haven't been back to Japan in over, I think it was almost been seven years, um, which meant I haven't seen my mom, my brother, my grandmother, no one for seven years. And part of that was definitely like, you know, the pandemic, but this trip kind of came into my lap and it was just like this perfect opportunity to kind of like, you know, go learn about shochu, go drink more shochu and, and then also be kind of like, you know, back home. So it's been a beautiful, beautiful time. Okay, wow. So it sounds like you killed more than a few birds in one stone. <laughs> Definitely. You have your, your uh, professional sort of um, curiosities fulfilled as well as your family connections. So that, that's yeah. kind of what more can you ask for in a business trip? <laughs> so what was the actual itinerary? So were you all over Kyushu or did you spend a lot of time in one of the prefectures? How did that look? We mostly stayed in Miyazaki and then, um, oh my gosh, I don't even remember what our full itinerary was because it was just like so on the go, but mostly Miyazaki. And then I believe we went to Kagoshima as well too. Um, I don't, I'm, I always kind of forget the differences between the prefectures and like the towns in, when it comes to Kyushu. So, <laughs> but yeah, it was just like this really, really beautiful trip. Um, as I mentioned, uh, 
something I've been thinking about for a very long time and uh, being able to see all the, the, the forests and the fields that my friends have been talking for so long or where the rivers meet the oceans, all that. It was just um, a dream come true. Really, really beautiful time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, Kyushu definitely has like a totally different landscape overall than I think the kind of surrounding areas um, of Tokyo. So I'm yeah. sure that was pretty amazing. Um, were you guys driving a lot or taking trains or how was how were you guys getting around? Oh, we were definitely uh, we were like on a, on a bus that took us everywhere. Thankfully, air conditioned as well, too, because that was another thing I wasn't quite expecting. Like I've been through Tokyo hot humid heat and Kyushu was like you know a couple notches higher than that so (laughs) yes yes uh AC is a must um even if you have no interest in department stores in Japan in the summer you want to walk through them because they're the most (laughs) air-conditioned places on the planet um so I definitely feel you on that so um going back a little before kind of diving into the shochu piece of this trip I actually wanted to hear a little bit more about um, how you got into the food and beverage industry and your your sort of um, story there. What were some of the initial kind of drivers that brought you into the bar or yeah to the restaurant world? Yeah, I I guess I've had like you know at the time I didn't really think it was that unique or anything just because you were living in the moment and just kind of like you know getting through the day, but. Um, one thing I noticed in like my mid twenties was how unique my kind of like upbringing was in actually in life, but also especially in the food and beverage world. Um, so I come from a family that's been in the restaurant industry since, uh, 1947. So my grandparents opened up a Akita-ryori restaurant, so Akita Cuisine, focusing a lot on like Hiritamponabe or like Hata Hata, um, which are two like more of the iconic dishes of Akita and when they opened the restaurant like you know this was post-war so no one was really focusing on the quality of your ingredients of your food um it was up until that point mostly survival um so they opened up this really wonderful restaurant that actually um was originally kind of like an affiliation and collaboration with Aramasasake up in Akita as well and they wanted to kind of like really come into the Tokyo market. So my grandfather was really great friends with the CEO at the time or the owner at the time. And um, they kind of created this idea of opening up a style restaurant in Tokyo. And then they kind of wanted to just focus on their sake producing and let my grandfather just kind of like keep the name. And uh, then that was kind of pretty much how Aramasa restaurant was born. And that restaurant became quite a huge success. Um, if I remember correctly, he told me that like he was a, in a one of the first quote like accounts for like the Tsukiji fish market. So up until um, even like when he passed away, like I would go to the Tsukiji market quite often with him, and like everyone knew who he was. Um, so that was like pretty interesting, and and uh, the success of that restaurant. So we opened up in, in Asakusa and um, the success of that restaurant led to opening up two other Aramasa locations in Shinjuku and Ginza. And then my grandmother opened up a cocktail bar called Kagano Bar, which uh, was open from the 60, 50s through 60s. My grandfather then traveled the world and really fell in love with uh, South American like farm and ranch life. 
So he kind of took that idea of like ranches and opened up his own ranch. Um, I believe it was in the Kawaguchiko area, so right by Mount Fuji. And that ranch kind of became a resource for all of our restaurants, produce and proteins, except for seafood. And that then encouraged my grandmother to also open up a teppanyaki restaurant called Skizuki, which is where I'm sitting at right now. <laughs> and um, so by the time I was born, we just had the flagship Aramasa and the Skizuki open. So I kind of got put to work like immediately. <laughs> and, you know, originally it started off as just kind of like, you know, um, learning a little bit about like teppanyaki, learning a little bit about um, how to prepare um, kiritampo nabe. And then it became this kind of like um, my, my grandparents, my grandparents would then have me come back to Japan up to like three times a year during like, you know, the vacation times to work in their restaurants and learn a little bit more about service and hospitality management. Um, and I did this pretty much every year between the ages of like 11 until 17. And then once I graduated from high school, I moved to Japan, actually, back to Japan. Um, I, we had lived here when I was younger. And that was kind of like a 24-hour kind of like experience of like, like you know, waking up, going to the fish market, you know, doing all that. And did that for about two and a half, three years and then came back to the States. And by that time, I um, was kind of getting into the bar world. I really actually didn't really want to work in restaurants that was kind of like you know when when someone tells you to do something you kind of rebel against them. <laughs> and um I was really focusing a lot more in becoming uh, or I guess going into the film world and music world and thought that that was a really great platform for creativity for myself and by the time I was like about to leave Japan and coming back to the states I don't know I had this like aha moment where I realized I could still express my creativity through work in restaurants and bars. And that's when I kind of started really focusing on bartending and kind of applying my twist on cocktails or, you know, whether it was just like making cocktails at home. Um, the moment I got back to the U.S., I started working as a manager at a Japanese restaurant and they kind of gave me the free rings to um, create like a, a sake and shochu based cocktail menu so um, coming straight from Japan I had like you know so many fresh ideas and from there it just kind of kept on blossoming and blossoming and uh, continued working in the bar industry <laughs> sorry that's a long answer <laughs> wow okay so definitely you definitely have a pretty rich um, background I would say roots um, in the food and beverage industry especially with the connection to Japan so tracing all the way back to 1947. That's that's a pretty um, solid lineage. And for those who <laughs> uh, might not know, Akita, that's Northern Japan, obviously uh, very well known for those who are interested in sake. So that probably everyone who's listening to this probably knows where Akita is, but it might not be on the list for somebody who's visiting Japan for the first time. So um, I've also not heard too much about uh, restaurants specifically serving Akita cuisine. So I'm, I'm quite interested in checking that out when I get a chance. But so, yeah, that's really cool. So basically, it sounds like a lot of your formative years were spent kind of coming back to Japan, reconnecting with the culture, and also really getting the kind of uh, initial professional experience 
in restaurants, but kind of because you're in this family environment, I, I imagine that you were doing all kinds of roles, not just one job, but like, you know, doing all of the odd jobs that were necessary. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, my grandparent, my specifically my grandfather really wanted me to learn every single position. So um, whether that was like washing dishes or, you know, actually getting on the floor and taking orders or sometimes when he felt like he could trust me, uh, I'd come behind the bar and, um, I don't necessarily want to say it's bartending, but I guess it is in a way tending bar, but I would make sure, uh, to remember all of our regulars, like sake preferences and their temperature preferences and put all the sake in the okan and, you know, heat them up in the water bath and everything. Like that was something that I learned how to juggle at a very young age, or at least tried to, <laughs> um, and then even like kind of the behind the scenes stuff, like my grandfather had me do my first payroll when I was like, I think 15 or something. So, um, so he really, really wanted to make sure that I got some sort of, you know, training and all of that. It was like service boot camp almost. <laughs> I can imagine that would be playing uh, a huge role in your life right now, working in, in the Bay Area, like those oh, different yeah. <laughs> roles. Now that now that you're more in maybe like the hiring position and the training position, having probably done those things makes a huge difference in how you look at those roles. One hundred percent. So um, another kind of interesting thing was that your grandfather traveled to South America and then opened his own ranch. So is I'm I'm just kind of guessing based on your last name. Are you is part of your family from Latin America or? Um, it is, but that was, that's completely, like, completely separate from, like, you know, his travels, but um, we, I do have, like, Latin American ties. My father's from El Salvador, um, okay. but, um, no, my grandpa just really, like, he was such an interesting person, especially during that time in Japan, like, he was so determined to, like, learn things, and I can't necessarily say that I I've acquired the same skill set as him, but I've I've definitely always been very open to learning a whole lot because he was someone who just took things and studied them to the point where he became a professional in whatever it was that he studied. So um, I think at one point back in the 50s, he was the national champion of um, using uh, like an abacus in Japan. (laughs) um and he was also that's a pretty big deal that was a big deal that you know it's so funny because like when when I first started working in his restaurants we didn't have a calculator we didn't have uh, a proper like like a POS system was like we never have we still don't have one and we have just a cash drawer um so I was he was trying to teach me how to use an abacus and I was like you know I have a, a a calculator it's so much faster like I don't you know you're gonna lose money if I if I try doing this but um but uh he was also just so interested in like languages so he was more fluent in Tagalog and in Spanish than he was in Japanese at one point so you know even though he had absolutely no connection to like in my Latin roots there has always been some sort of connection right there and um yeah, so for him going to the South America, that was kind of like the most perfect place for him to go. He wanted to go see the Amazon. He wanted to go um, to Peru and to Brazil where there's like, you know, very large Japanese populations. And then he just 
unexpectedly fell in love with like branches and just really wanted to mimic that here in Japan too. I mean, it sounds like you do take after some of those aspects of these kinds of deep pursuits in um, kind of a, a variety of areas um, with both how you are in the industry. And also it sounds like you're crossing over into some of these, I would say entertainment, or you were, you were talking about film and music, but now you have these different opportunities through this bar avenue to be in front of people in a totally different way from the bar context. So I was actually curious to hear, um, what was it like to be in the uh, Netflix program? What was that experience like? How how was it similar or different from actually working in a bar? And like, what, what was that whole process like? <laughs> um, do you want my honest opinion? <laughs> it, it was, <laughs> of course. <laughs> it, was, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced, unlike any other competition I've ever been in. Um, I think I, I went into this experience with the with the mindset that this was like a like a actual cocktail competition but it is definitely like you know it's a show it's entertainment there's definitely that aspect of it but you know it, it was a really challenging time and uh you know we were filming in 2021 and I don't know I I've only watched a couple episodes because I it's just too um there's too much PTSD watching it so um but um you know, watching it, like, I think, you know, for me, my biggest focus, and I don't think they talked about this a whole lot at all, or if, if at all, but um, we were filming in 2021. This is, like, right after, you know, the insane year that, like, the AAPI community went through in the U.S. So, for me, this was kind of, like, my peaceful protest um, to represent Japanese culture in the most way that I could, and I think that connected with a lot of people all around the world um, who maybe feel underrepresented or just felt like, you know, maybe not represented in, in a certain way. So um, for me, even though the filming of the actual show was kind of like, you know, really long hours, it was really chaotic and stressful, the outcome of it all has been incredibly positive. I mean, just the other night I was in Shinjuku and like, 20 people came up to me and they're like thank you so much for what you did that was really fun I was like wow even in Japan this is happening like this is so crazy like you know so my job as a bartender is always to create like a safe space for my guests to have an entertaining time and the fact that I was able to translate that through a tv show um and for other people to feel the same way that that I would want my guests to feel in front of me in my bar um was something that I wasn't really expecting people to feel but I guess it did and it makes me feel really good <laughs> wow that that was definitely not the answer I thought but that's really really cool I mean it's something that I feel like as as people who work inside bars it's a very intimate experience but it's often a very targeted small scale influence that we have uh, towards the guests that are sitting in front of us and it's not what you would call maybe right. like a scalable experience. Whereas being a part of a show like this, it is kind of this, uh, a different scale of, of, if you would call it hospitality or building community or building a safe space where something that you, you, you're presenting yourself in a certain way, the way that you are basically just in that space is affecting a much broader audience than maybe you would have imagined in the confinements of a, one bar. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, once again, like, the actual filming of the show, especially, like, you know, I was 
up for elimination for the entire show, I felt like. Um, it was really stressful and chaotic, but I'm really, really happy with like how people perceived it. And um, I think most people who know me in, in person, like my friends, will say that like I represented myself 100% as I do in real life as I did on TV so that uh yeah it was it it was pretty authentic <laughs> the, the tears uh, the, the crying the laughing the the joking it was it that's that's my daily life <laughs> maybe not so much the crying every day but <laughs> well um I will get you away from the topic so that we don't have to deal with the PTSD um but I am curious <laughs> if they had shochu as an available ingredient for cocktails they did have one movie shochu um, that I did apply into one cocktail. I don't quite remember which one it was. Um, but yes, I uh, I did have shochu at one point on that show. So That's great for them to include that into the repertoire. You know, I the thing about shochu that's so amazing and, you know, I so many people are so unaware of what shochu is, about the flexibility, about its diversity. I love it because in cocktails, it serves the same purpose that someone who might be interested in like mezcal, what, how it accomplishes a cocktail. And I think, you know, especially being in the Bay Area in San Francisco, we are a huge mezcal market. And I always compare shochu to mezcal because the two, maybe not profile wise, but the similarities between production about, you know, taking something from the earth and then turning it into like this like beautiful story and this amazing juice um in my opinion identical and um i i think more people are starting to kind of form a palette for shochu and kind of getting a better understanding of shochu as well too and i think it's my job as a bartender to really start kind of educating more guests educating more bartenders especially because at the end of the day we're kind of the middle person who um, I think are like the tool to be able to get more people to understand what a shochu is or to drink or how to apply it in a cocktail. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. I found myself really using the mezcal shochu comparison uh, repeatedly, especially as I got to know um, both of them better, even though it's not that they taste similar. Um, there's something kind of fundamental about its, not only the sort of the contour of the production, but where it sat in the culture before it has really exploded into the cocktail domain. It is very regional. It is very kind of tied to the um, specific region and, and these families that make it. Um, and even though in Japan, you don't really see like family scale, you know, um, productions, they're, they're all registered productions. But even then, I do notice there is a huge huge kind of overlap there and it does help bridge the gap to those who have never really heard of shochu or had shochu if they already like mezcal it's definitely a great kind of doorway into that conversation so i was wondering on this trip specifically if there was anything that you have um, experienced or learned for the first time that maybe changed your perspective about the spirit or the region or its application anything like that yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, like, you know, going into this trip, um, even with like, you know, my experiences in shochu, all my menus and stuff or my pop-ups, um, my, I guess, especially looking back on it, my knowledge is or was a lot more limited to what I thought it 
what I thought I knew. Like, for me, being able to compare one particular shochu that's been um, maybe if, if there's like a one shochu that's using like white koji versus black koji and then atmospheric pressure versus reduced pressure, like... I didn't realize that just that one shochu that's made in four different ways can have such a diverse palette. Like that was something that really kind of like shook me. I was like in complete shock by how, how cool that was, you know, like that was something that, um, you know, for me, I can tell you like, you know, oh, I love Mugi shochu for this reason. I love Emo shochu for that reason. And for me, that was kind of the range of diversity that I really understood, but really kind of getting into like the koji parts of it the style of distillation the yeast that are being used of course and then there's the terroir aspect of it too like it was just like this really amazing mind-blowing experience that you know i i just was not quite prepared for (laughs) so that was that was really really awesome and then you've got like you know your genshus and and um yeah, just so much fun. I had a, such a blast. <laughs> so moving forward, are you planning to use more shochu? And of course, I mean, you also have experienced some abamori um, during your trip. Are you planning to integrate them more in your menu? You know, it's um, it's so funny. I mean, like at the moment, my my the menu at Wild Hawk, the bar that I run, um, already has like, you know, quite a few um, shochu cocktails. I think like right now, like this is just kind of like, you know, a little, not really a secret anymore, but I'm currently writing at the beginning steps of writing my first cocktail book. And I think that's the one where I'm like, oh, I kind of want to rework all my drinks, (laughs) like all of them (laughs) to incorporate shochus and in almost all of them, because there's so much, um, like I, I keep on saying diversity, but like, you know, the shochu is so unique in a way where you could really apply it into other cocktails that have a different base spirit. Um, and that's something that I've always kind of like, you know, understood as a bartender, you can always like, you know, swap things out and just adjust something a little bit differently. But especially with this trip that I went on um, with JSS, the specific profiles that I had were so much more aligned with some of the cocktails that I've already produced and a lot of the times I didn't really talk to anyone about the cocktails that were like you know I was referencing in my head like oh this shochu would be really great in my cocktail that I did for this this and that that typically has that so the entire time I was like writing notes like sub this for this shochu or something so so, um, yeah, I definitely plan on using a lot more shochu. I mean, you know, I, I, I was Chikako-san from the trip. She and I were like, you know, kind of low-key joking about like opening up a shochu bar. But I'm like, I'm I'm ready. I'm committed. So <laughs> nice. I'm sure people would love that. Ne? Shochu bar <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually haven't had the luxury of trying a bunch of your drinks in person yet. I was curious, like, how would you describe your sort of cocktail stylistically? Do you have a stylistic tendency, would you say, or? Um, I mean, especially like with my pop-up, um, I obviously try to focus a lot on um, like, you know, Japanese ingredients, Japanese produce. Um, a lot of my cocktails are based off of memories uh, of like, you know, my upbringing in Japan. But also I, because I do have a, a 
bit of a different upbringing as well, too. Like, you know, being like, you know, half Latino, for me, that's a really awesome avenue to explore cocktail production, especially with shochu now. Like, I mean, um, you know, we always talk about Nikkei being this amazing merge between Japanese and Peruvian cultures. But for me, that's the perfect kind of like stencil base as like, you know, oh, if if that could be done, then combining Japanese with Mexican ingredients and Salvadoran ingredients is something that could easily be done as well, too. I mean, going to Oaxaca, I went to Oaxaca this year, and I wasn't expecting to see so much Japanese influence in Oaxaca City and Oaxaca Central. And the Japanese culture is such a unique and fluid uh, flavor profile that could kind of take on other flavors as well too so I've already experimented a lot with like you know merging my Salvadorian roots with like my Japanese roots in cocktail form um but especially with like shochu like those flavors can really take on some of the funkier stuff that that are are available in, in Central America so I do combine a little bit of like you know that in my cocktail style as well too generally speaking I want to say my cocktails are a little bit more minimal um minimal with a lot of flavor I really love combining different palettes. So a lot of my drinks tend to be savory floral. That's like a, a really sweet spot for me. So yeah, <laughs> I think I think that's the style that most people would identify me uh, with myself. Nice. I, I mean, minimal with a lot of lot a lot of flavor and savory floral. That'll that'll get me uh, ordering at <laughs> least uh, <laughs> at least several rounds for sure. <laughs> um, I'm definitely looking forward to coming by um, when I'm in the Bay next time. Um, and I really agree with you in terms of the the sort of multiple spirits layering sort of application of shochu. And actually, a few episodes earlier, um, Soran, who you might know, um, he's a bartender in Tokyo. He was also talking mm-hmm. about on Sake on Air how kind of conducive uh, shochu is to this type of spirit layering and multi you know base spirit compositions i almost want to challenge this idea of a base spirit where it's like do we really need that you know concept for every drink sometimes it's really several um kind of aspects that are forming the foundation it's not really reliant on one base spirit over the other and you know back at sg we actually had some drinks where we would put in a bar spoon of shochu in a cocktail or a, mm-hmm. a dash of shochu in a cocktail using a bitters bottle. And because of the koji aspect that you're talking about and, and just the stylistically how, um, how those flavors are still present in the distillate, even one bar spoon actually brings out so much more flavor in the drink. Even if you don't notice that you're tasting that particular shochu, it's actually elevating the rest of the flavors. And I feel like that's a pretty unusual spirit that can do that. 100%. Can I ask you a little bit here? Because I know we often don't talk about cocktails here at Sake on Air, and I'm not sure how familiar (laughs) a lot of our listeners are with the concept of a bar spoon of the spirit. Maybe if you can kind of explain a little bit the concept behind it, why would you do it? And what does it do to a cocktail? Yeah, um, so I 100% agree with you with, um, you know, how shochu can easily be the base of the drink. It could also be, like, you know, you could use the most tiny bit about, like, you know, we're talking, like, a bar spoon would be, like, you know, about a 
teaspoonish amount of like you know shoshu in a cocktail and how that could still really bring the entire drink together i mean at wild talk right now i do have a cocktail on the menu that um is kind of like a like a boulevardier style cocktail so like negroni with like you know a little bit of like a japanese whiskey uh, and we do only use a, a few dashes so about a teaspoon of um a pretty robust very savory mugishochu um, and it really just kind of completes the entire drink it brings out the salinity of it brings out all of the flavors that is such like a watermelon boulevardier style drink so like you know really allows the watermelon to shine you taste more of the watermelon but it's got the, this other kind of funky soyness to it that just like when people try it they're just like i i don't know what that flavor is and it's like oh that's koji that's like 100 the shochu like like how much of it did you put in there it's like the most tiny bit and it just it it finalizes the cocktail and it becomes the star of this cocktail almost too it's really really amazing um i guess the power of that flavor um it's yeah it's dynamic i love it and then you've also got very demure shochus as well too so um, I, I have a cocktail that's kind of like a martini style drink that allows, I think there's actually, um, I use the SG shochus quite a bit with <laughs> my cocktail. So the, the Kome shochu, um, uh, using it in almost like a martini style cocktail. And if I were to use any other clear spirit, like a vodka or something, it just wouldn't, it doesn't have that extra oomph that I'm looking for, like, you know, in, in my drink. So it's it's such an awesome spirit and cocktails like really unlike anything else that's that's out there so yeah i have kind of an idea about this and i was i was curious to hear what your thoughts on, uh thoughts on it might be so um just kind of answering your question cindy in a different way typically um an ingredient that you would put in your cocktail how much of that ingredient you would put into the drink is usually dictated by how powerful the flavor is or how strong the alcohol is. So if it's a strong flavor or strong alcohol, um, you would put less in. And if it has a lighter flavor um, or lighter alcohol, for example, like tonic water, which is not an intense flavor, um, that's something you would use a lot of to like top off the drink. Um, but then shochu, the way that you use it, the way that you can use it almost goes against this rule because there's some shochu where the flavor itself is not extremely strong. It, it might not have as intense of a flavor profile as, say, a scotch. And that means that you would need to use a lot of it to get the flavor. But even just using a little bit of it somehow kind of enunciates the rest of the flavors. And this is something I notice about shochu when we're eating and drinking as well. And the way that I, I, I personally like to kind of describe it or understand it is that shochu tastes great but more than that it prepares you for other things that are delicious so it helps you enjoy other delicious things more and i feel like that's kind of what it does for cocktails as well yeah absolutely i mean you know traditionally most people in japan drink shochu with food and you know it is such a a food friendly um uh drink you know like um when I produce cocktails, like, you know, a lot of my drinks have some sort of like produce element to them, whether if it's through something I made in house or if it's a liqueur or whatever it is. But 
if I add shochu to it, it almost like elevates that particular flavor experience to a whole different place. Like I can think of like right now on my menu, I have um, something that's meant to be kind of like a, a funky rum banana martini style drink. And uh, actually that cocktail also has the SG uh, Mugi Shochu in it. And um, when I'm building these cocktails, like, you know, typically I have like a base and I kind of just like add layers to see what works and what doesn't work. And when I was producing this cocktail, you know, I, I really wanted the banana to like shine, but also have banana be represented in several different ways. Like, you know, I wanted like um, the cocktail to taste like fresh bananas, but also like banana bread um, and kind of like that funkier, like, you know, almost like plantain style banana flavor. And what brought everything all together was the Mugi Shochu for some odd reason. And like just that little tiny layer of funk really kind of allowed banana to become you know in three different ways become one whole thing and uh that was something that I wasn't really fully expecting (laughs) so yeah it's it's such a food friendly and produce friendly um spirit that really does just kind of like connect the dots in a certain way Mm, I love it I love it so for people who are kind of new to shochu or shochu and cocktails like where would you recommend people to start if there is such a thing (laughs) i mean i i think i would start just by having like just a classic japanese drink like you know like a shochu highball or like my favorite drink has always been like a mugi uh udon hai would like you know it's just iced oolong tea with a little bit of shochu and for me um using that whole shochu and tea combination and pairing has always been a fun way to start so for me whenever I'm like producing a cocktail that I want to keep it super simple and light I'll maybe experiment with a different kind of tea and a different kind of shochu and see what pairing works with that and then from there starting to kind of like you know incorporate shochu into like classic cocktails so whether that's you know replacing a gin for like maybe a like a barley shochu and like a negroni or something and seeing what that does and then comparing that to like a rice shochu or an emo shochu and then seeing you know this brought out like that component in the campari or whatever it is and seeing what works well and then like I think the beauty of shochu too is that you have so many different avenues um, whether if you want to stick with something that is going to replace your standard spirit or if you want to do something that is more of like a, a vermouth or sake alternative as well to in a cocktail, the options are limitless. So, I mean, um, Cindy, please stop us if there is another sort of um, kind of digging kind of deeper for for a particular uh, subject. But I think one of the things that is a, a big challenge for the category um, shochu, which is something that I'm, you know, quite passionate about, even though I don't work at a bar right now, I feel pretty strongly about shochu in general. And one of the barriers to entry in my mind is is what makes it so amazing once you get into it. It's that there is so much variety, both in terms of base ingredient and style. And I think that's something that might prevent 
somebody like you say, if somebody wants to use shochu at home to make a cocktail, it's actually really hard to answer that question because it really depends on if you buy a 25% bottle of ichigo versus if you bought a you know 40% alcohol bottle of of like a barrel aged uh, imo shochu or something like that. These have completely different sort of applications and it does require a little bit of a background knowledge to then start applying your creativity and in, in using it. But um, what, how, like, how have you kind of dealt with this barrier of entry for your guests or for people who have asked you about the category? Yeah, so the easiest way to like explain to people who like like home bartenders is like let's just talk about like a um, like a margarita or like a, a daiquiri style drink. Um, I always explain like you know if you want to make something that is more of like a shochu daiquiri or something, then I would probably stick with the recipe that I typically. If if you're gonna get like a like a higher ABV like a forty percent ABV shochu, then go ahead and just make your daiquiri the same way that you would as if you were to make a, a rum daiquiri. But if you were to go for like a lower ABV shochu, like a 20, 25% ABV, then adjusting your, your ratios and specs is like super crucial because you can't apply that same ratio that you did with the 40% ABV to a 25%. And, you know, I'm going to be a little off topic for a second, but um, I always kind of, have this idea that cocktail recipes are more I, I I look at cocktail recipes more of concepts than I do uh than recipes that you should be following like you know like recipe like you know ounce by ounce or milliliter by milliliter during the pandemic I was teaching a ton of virtual cocktail classes and that was how I was able to like survive <laughs> um, and when you teach these classes you have such an incredible um, variety of people who are sitting in listening. And I, you know, one thing I noticed was like, I can't teach everyone the same exact recipe because they're coming from different regions of the U.S. or some parts of the different, different parts of the world. So, you know, everyone's palate's a little bit different. So I kind of got used to telling folks like, you know, a quarter ounce is a great way, is a great measurement to either add or subtract to a drink that you may feel like may be unbalanced to you. So I always use San Francisco versus like, you know, Miami as like the perfect example of like, you know, you can take one cocktail and have two incredibly different outcomes based off of the people that consume those in those markets. So my daiquiri in San Francisco that I would typically make is probably going to be very dry in comparison to someone in like Miami and educating those viewers was something that they, they always thought, like, I thought a cocktail always had to be this way. I thought I had to follow this recipe and kind of changing that um, mindset to believing that they're more of a concept, the concept of my daiquiri is that it's a rum-based cocktail with some lime and sugar as opposed to it's going to be two ounces of this three-quarter ounces of that and that you know so I started kind of training myself to allow guests to understand a little bit more of what I do behind the bar behind the scenes of how to balance out flavor so taking a 25% ABV shochu and explaining to somebody, I would adjust my specs by this, this, and that is something that I think more people are, I think, understanding of. 
you know, it doesn't get lost in translation between bartender to non-bartender. At least that's what I'm hoping for, and that's what I think. But um, um, yeah, I, 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 I hope that answered your question a little bit. Sorry, I kind of went a little off topic for a second, but especially with the pandemic when people really wanted to just like learn more about bartending they took a little bit more understanding of like balancing things out so when you do tell folks like you know this is a lower ABV shochu you might want to reduce by a quarter ounce you know do this this and that um verbiage doesn't get lost a whole lot anymore I don't think at least no that's great I totally agree that I mean first of all the ABV factor just looking at the label, making sure you realize that there is this range that will um, affect how you want to approach it. And um, the quarter ounce kind of reference as as like a room for, you know, headroom, both up and down. I, and and I really like your example about a daiquiri in San Francisco versus uh, Miami. It's, it's not a shochu specific thing. It's really just about how drinks are made, whether it's at home or in a bar. It's the same thing that bartenders deal with when they travel to another part of the country for a guest shift and realize that maybe the pineapple juice is totally different than what you're used to using. <laughs> so it's it's really a lot of these more so than a lot of home kind of shochu cocktail making know-how is more just general cocktail making know-how, which I know doesn't make things necessarily easy because there is some basic things to learn. But it really is like, what is the flavor? What is the alcohol level? Those are kind of the main things that um, as long as you're keeping note of it, that will help you make a decision as to how you want to adjust the drink. Right, right. And then one, one thing that might be also interesting for um, shochu, like shochu cocktail making at home is that there is no rule that you have to be using any particular kind of equipment. You don't have to be standing in front of a, you know, mixing glass and use ice and stir the cocktail to completion, you can actually make the drink and then leave it in the fridge or leave it in the freezer to make it cool down so that you're not diluting the cocktail anymore. Right, so right. in that sense, um, you could just make the drink exactly how you want it to taste and then change the method of chilling or change the method of dilution. So Home, in that sense, um, home cocktail making could have more leeway than I think a bar where you're, you have this performative aspect of needing to finish the drink right in front of the guest. Right, right. Um, so on this trip to Japan, uh, besides visiting the specific distilleries and the shochu producing regions, I assume you did also visit some bars and restaurants. I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering I was wondering if there was anything that you noticed since you said you haven't been to Japan in a few years, if there was any kind of changes in the trends or if there was any particular experience or drink or dish that really struck you as um something you hadn't experienced before. Um you know, I actually did a few nights ago go to SG Club and uh, I I had one cocktail there that was just like, I mean, everything there was just so incredible, but shochu-wise, I think it was like a pina colada style drink, and I don't know, it was just like super elevated and delicious, but um, I mean, I, I think, I, I, to answer your question, no, I wasn't surprised by anything, because every time I come to Japan, I know I'm going to have a really delicious cocktail, like, it doesn't matter where I go, that's something that... I think me living here, you know, for a number of years, I think um, I'm very 
fortunate and privileged to have had that. So I always know it doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to have a really amazing cocktail. But I think what really surprised me was I think in the last several years, the Japanese bar scene, the cocktail scene has definitely become more, it's, it's grown. Like there's a lot more cocktail bars I felt like uh, now than there were seven years ago. So the list that people just keep on giving me never ends. I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard of that bar. I haven't been to that bar. Like, you know, I had like my 10 on my list and I've barely gone to any of them, but now I have like 25 on my list that I have to go to. So um, I think, you know, and, and this is going to reference a little bit of a conversation that I had with somebody in Kyushu, but, you know, Japan is one of those countries that, you know, especially for like shochu production, there's so much tradition in there that, you know, especially for a country that focuses so much on tradition, uh, breaking those traditions or doing something outside of what's considered to be normal is something that you don't see quite often. So seeing shochu being used in cocktails is something that like, you know, in Kyushu, a lot of people are like, you know, like, that's just so unique and different. Like, you know, I'd rather just drink it on its own. And that's actually a conversation that I had with someone in Kyushu where I explained like, you know, I would also prefer to have shochu on its own, but, you know, especially when it comes to like a service setting, you know, my job is to create cocktails and it's to create, it's to create that bond between consumer and the per and the producer and um cocktails are the perfect vessel for that it's a really great translation it's a really great bridge between someone that may not know a whole lot about a particular product or spirit to now having an incredible experience with that particular product or spirit and um when i kind of twisted that perspective on this particular gentleman he was like I guess that makes sense I want you to make me some more shochu cocktails please and I'm like I will 100% do that for you so you know coming to Tokyo it was really awesome to see so much shochu being used in in cocktails um, I think that was probably the one thing that I wasn't quite seeing a whole lot of even like seven eight nine years ago here um, obviously people love drinking shochu but I always felt like shochu is more of like a you know People just drink it on the rocks. People drink it neat or as a highball or, or with oolong or with food, not so much in like craft cocktail bars. So that was really exciting to see a lot of shochus being used in that way. And also seeing that those traditions or I guess the, the idea of tradition has been kind of, I guess, remixed in a sort of way. <laughs> so that was really, really cool to see. And awesome to see that's not just happening in the U.S., but, you know, in, in also, of course, Japan. But yeah, that was pretty neat. Yeah, there is a, that reminds me of a quote by uh, Seth Godin, who, who I'm a big fan of. And he always says, the enemy is obscurity, not piracy. So it's, in this case, it's not <laughs> piracy, but the, the fact that shochu is known and is not obscure to these people, I think is actually more important than, you know, limiting the ways that it can be enjoyed. It's, through kind of expanding the ways that it can be enjoyed that we are actually more curious about it. And then once people are curious, then you can't really stop them. Then they dig to the corners of the world to, you know, find out more about it. And then oftentimes a lot of people like in, let's say, sake shochu specifically, the people who know a ton about it are often not Japanese people, but people from outside of Japan who have fallen in love with the category. 
and they end up right. knowing more tradition than the average Japanese person. Right. I think if cocktails <laughs> um, are a vessel to fight this sort of obscurity factor, it really could not only um, not only shine a light to tradition, but actually revive some traditions or create new traditions. So I think that's actually pretty exciting. <laughs> So I think we are kind of approaching the end of this conversation. I was curious, so when are you flying out? I am flying out tomorrow, which really bums me out. <laughs> I, I, you know, coming back to Japan really did bring out a whole lot of emotions that I knew I was going to have. But, you know, this is definitely, I, I identified Tokyo and Asakusa to be more of my home than anywhere else in the world. You know, I, my family lives here, so it's really, really been a, a beautiful homecoming and my gosh, I, I want to move back here so bad. So. <laughs> Which we love to hear. We want to see more of you here in Japan. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, um, it's bittersweet. I mean, of course I have my dog at home that's waiting for me. So, so it will be nice going back, but I, I really do miss Japan so much. It's, um, always so much fun and you know whether if it's exploring like the nightlife or you know going all the way to Kyushu and learning about shochu like it it's just always something new that I'm doing here and yeah I, I'm gonna miss it a lot <laughs> well I'm I'm really excited to kind of hear um how this trip really revived a lot of these um not not only your sort of memories but also inspired you in these different ways um how you plan to apply these uh, new learnings um, from your visits in Kyushu um, to your bar. It's actually amazing that you have a place you can go back to and immediately kind of apply these um, new pieces of inspiration. So I'm really excited to learn more about um, <laughs> that. And so um, have an amazing final day in Japan. And I'm really, thank really you, excited to you. hear um, how how this trip sort of manifests kind of after you get back to the states as well and i hope we can continue the conversation from there definitely same, thank same. you so i mean to both of you thank you so much for coming in i mean we were so lucky to have you Chushin, to kind of take over and lead the conversation um of course uh, susu amazing to hear more about your passion and kind of what you are going to be doing, we're going to keep a very close eye on <laughs> all of your projects. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. But with that, we are at the end of our episode today. So if anyone has any questions for us, then you can reach out to uh, questions at Sake on Air or follow along with us over on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter at Sake on Air. The show is brought to you by the wonderful support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is a production by Pots K Production with editing work by Mr. Frank Walter. We'll be back with more Sake and Shochu related topics in a very short time, a few weeks. So until then, kanpai! <laughs>